Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seale. Young conductors, conductors just starting out, and those who are studying conducting. You may want to know that I have a whole set of podcast interviews that you may find very interesting. This new series includes interviews with a chief executive of a major British orchestra, a chief executive of a major agency, the leader of a major UK orchestra, plus other orchestra musicians, including my interview with Fergus McWilliam, French horn player with the Berlin Philharmonic, which is available now. If you want to hear their views on what it takes to become a great conductor, you can when you subscribe for just £5 a month over on patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. For this small amount each month, you get these interviews plus much more. Details are in the show notes below. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who grew up in Argentina, but then went on to study in the US, where, since 2012, he's been the music director of the Camellia Symphony Orchestra in Sacramento. It's a great pleasure to welcome Christian Baldini. Christian, lovely to talk to you today. How are you? Very well, Mike. It's uh, my pleasure to be here with you. Great. Um, with everybody, I go back to the very beginning, and most of the time I go to Wikipedia or their home biography on their website, and I did exactly the same with you. And other than knowing that you were born in Argentina, I know nothing about instruments or when music first came into your life. So maybe you could tell me when did music first come into your life, um, uh, in what instrument and in what form? Yeah, so... Uh... Even though I started on the piano, I was four when I began. I'd been begging my mom, from what she tells me, uh, mm -hmm. growing up in Mar del Plata, Argentina, which is a it's a city about 750,000 people now. It was smaller when I grew up. It was about half a million. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a beach. It's a nice place for vacation and everybody from Buenos Aires escapes. It's about a four hour drive. Uh, that's where I grew up. And uh, when I was two, my mom tells me I started begging her to take violin lessons, even though I didn't even know what the instrument was called. I would show her with my arm going like that, sh showing her the bow. Yeah. Uh, I want to go like this, mommy. And uh, she tried, my mom being a nurse, and I come from a non-musical family, my father being a doctor. Um, she tried to find me a violin teacher. And even though the city was of a considerable size, half a million people, uh, music education was not, uh, you know, in big strength there. Mm. So she failed to find me a a violin instructor or somebody who would, I mean, there were, there was, there is a conservatory obviously, but uh, there was nobody who would want to teach a two-year-old. <laughs> um, and so they, there were not any youth orchestras or anything of the sort in, in Mar del Plata at that time. Uh, I, I was born in 78, uh, the year when Argentina first won the World Cup. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if no. we get into soccer at the later yeah. stage, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'm sure we will. Uh, def definitely. Yeah. Um, yes, I remember. I remember I was eight when the Argentina won the World Cup in 1978. So I do. It's my first World Cup. I remember that. Wow. And, and I was eight the second time we won it with Maradona at the helm mm -hmm. and, I, you know, with some infamous uh, plays against England, I'm sure yeah, yeah. You, you will remember. Uh, but uh, going back to the, the beginnings, yeah, so I didn't start on the violin because uh, she couldn't find one. But then two years later, my dad had a patient uh, in his practice who happened to be a piano teacher who happened to live across the street from us. So that's how we started. Uh, and so, as you said, you started playing the piano. Did you at any stage ever get to learn to play the violin? Never. Uh, oh, shame. So as, no, n never the violin, but I then took up the cello uh, and then I switched. I actually didn't really like the fact of having to carry this 
big instrument. Mm. So I switched after a year or two, I switched to viola. Ah. And so that was my, the string instrument I learned, but I never actually played the violin. And, and I'm assuming you stayed in Mar del Plata and had lessons there. At what point did you um, seek the, the the glowing lights that I know very well of Buenos Aires for, for lessons? Or did you, you know, were there summer music camps um, or was everything in Mar del Plata? No, it was probably around by the time I was 15 or so, I realized uh, that I would I would need to especially to go to college, uh, I would need to go to Buenos Aires. And at that time I was deciding, you know, shall I go into, I mean, my family never pushed me in any direction. So, you know, I, I considered vaguely medical school. I considered vaguely engineering because I really liked uh, maths and physics. That were the two subjects that I really liked in school. Uh, but music had been with me since uh, I was a little boy and composing especially was my, my favorite thing to do since ever since I started playing the piano. Um, and so by the time I was 15, I think I stopped fooling around with different options and I thought, okay, uh, music it is. And my parents were supportive of it, which I was very grateful for. And I realized the best place to go uh, was uh, in Buenos Aires. So I did a little trip, I think before I entered my last year of high school or two years before, uh, just to go into the two separate options, which, which were either in La Plata or in Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. And it became very clear that Buenos Aires was a much better option for, for me, for what I needed. And uh, so I started preparing myself for, for those exams I would have to take to get into the School of Music in, in Buenos Aires. And it was a... At that time, things have changed now, but at that time, the Catholic University, which is where I studied the UCA, so-called UCA, uh, was a seven-year degree for your bachelor's degree. Uh, and that included, it was five years of the, the BA or BM itself, plus two years of uh, pre-qualifications that you had to, to do. Uh, so it was very much in, this, in the style of the French conservatoire, long-range mm. system. And so I decided immediately that, okay, I need to do a lot of work to get ready for this. And uh, so I started taking private lessons specifically in counterpoint, in harmony, in theory and uh, oral skills. So to be able to skip at least one of those two years of requirements. So, so that's what I did um, to get ready. And so you go to UCA, uh, the Catholic University of Argentina in Buenos Aires, and I read that you did um composition and conducting um right. had conducting been a thought before you went there i mean did you choose to do that or did that sort of happen during the time that you were at uca so at the beginning luckily uh it was a common core you could begin and kind of give yourself since it was such a long degree you had at least two years pretty much in which there were no no separate subjects for the different specializations so mm. uh but from the beginning, I knew con composition for sure and conducting maybe if I, you know, if I find that I have the chops and I, I like <laughs> the idea of the the challenge of uh, the rigorous training that conducting needed. And uh, so I thought, you know, even if if I end up not being good enough for this, I, I think it might give me some good tools that I can put to use as a composer as well. That was my thought to begin with. Well, I think you're you're right. I mean, you know, if I look back at my own life, you know, the first time I ever conducted was one of my own pieces. I was a joint first study composition and violin student at the Conservatory in Birmingham. And, you know, the first time I ever conducted was one of my own pieces. And 
you know, later on, I went on to become a conductor and, and you know, I've written two pieces, three, three pieces in 35 years, you know, but the, okay. I think the, the point is that many composers would have benefited from having some sort of conducting uh, knowledge, lessons um, to help them, you know, when you first start out as a composer, to be able to conduct your own music is a big bonus, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's exactly how I started as well. Mm. Uh, I mean, putting together concerts with some of my composer friends and suddenly realizing somebody needs to stand up and, and wave their arms. And, and that's how I started. And some some of them were not really comfortable doing it. And they would say, hey, do you want to do my piece as well? And that that's how I started. Exactly. And, and I always recommend it when I work with, especially with young composers who are uh, starting their career. Uh, if they haven't done any conducting, I always suggest, you know, try it. Give this a try because it will make you think of music in a, in a different way. And that mechanical aspect of things can, can be very helpful for a composer. Mm. So I'm um, therefore somebody was teaching you conducting at UCA. Who would that be? That was uh, Guillermo Scarabino, who is, you know, he's been a great, uh, great mentor and teacher of, of most Argentinian conductors, really, of at least my generation and previous ones. Somebody I have met um, on numerous occasions, because, uh, dear listeners, I have visited Buenos Aires on about nine or ten or eleven occasions and conducted two or three different orchestras there. Uh, love the place. And, yeah, Scarabino is, a, is um, he's sort of been around forever and conducted everybody and you know virtually every time I go I, his name's mentioned or I, bu I bump into him or whatever what was his teaching style like um I ask a lot of conductors you know was he uh, an overall package or was he much into more into stick technique than the score what how did he teach he was um a great man. We're still in touch. Uh, somebody who, you know, was a, a model in many, many ways. Uh, he was very technical. So mm -hmm. I'm very grateful that as my first teacher, I had somebody who, who was very meticulous about the stick technique. Um, his uh, training had been, he had been uh, studying in Vienna with Swarovski. Ah. And he, he studied also in the US, in Eastman, at the Eastman School of Music. Mm. So he had quite a variety of uh, in his foundation in himself um, and he was very very strict in many <laughs> ways I remember in our orchestra rehearsals uh, everybody was terrified of him and this is both musicians in the orchestra and, and my conducting colleagues uh, <laughs> as all of us students were you know in awe at, at him and uh, somehow really really scared of him it was uh, following on the tradition of the old maestri, for sure. Mm. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that he was very much into stick technique when he was trained by Swarovski in Vienna. And, and as I've said on previous podcasts, you know, Swarovski famously only used to give about 10 or 15 minutes of stick technique talk to his, this, you know, Zuby Mater has gone on record as saying, probably in the whole time I was there. He talked about technique for about 10 minutes. So he must have picked that up from Eastman or decided that, you know, he was going to concentrate more on that before he went to the music. Definitely. I think that that's what I mean by the the various different uh, influences yeah. that he had in his life. And having been in America was probably what made him really uh, very particular about the stick. Yeah. yeah. And did you do a lot of actual conducting um, whilst at UCA? I mean, what I mean by that is conducting 
an orchestra as opposed to two pianos or, or shadow conducting or air conducting or mirror conducting or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, when, well, that's one of the things that really made me decide to go to Uka is that, uh, of course, there was time with, with piano, uh, but there was a lot of time with orchestra because uh, this is, I think, one of the only places where I can think even nowadays, I mean, it might have changed now because the, 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 I think the degree and the curriculum has changed enormously, enormously since my time there. I mean, I graduated like 20 years ago. Right. Uh, but we used to have, at least back then, a professional orchestra uh, that we would conduct every week. Wow, wow. Which is unheard of. Uh, well, I mean, other than, other than the old days with Moosin in Leningrad and the Sibelius Academy now in Helsinki, very few places have anything like that, you know. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what a bonus, what an absolute bonus, because then you learn to conduct more than two pianos, <laughs> which is always Definitely. a bonus. <laughs> exactly. uh, and, and so what was the next step? Having been and done your five-year um, degree at UCA, where next and why? Yeah, so uh, by that by the time I was in the middle of a career, so my third, fourth year there, I of course that became uh, more and more clear that yes, conducting was also important to me, and, and it kind of uh, became equally important to my to my life as a composer, and uh, I started getting busier with that, and uh, I joined two of my colleagues during my undergraduate years, and we decided to to found a youth orchestra, which oh, wow. there was none. There was none of that in, in UCA. There was no student orchestra. So we went uh, to the dean of the school, we went to the, the provost, and we made a proposal. And at the beginning, there was a little bit of, I remember there was some resistance. Anytime you want to open something, there, there is thoughts on the other side that, for example, oh, they're trying to do this and they're going to defund the professional orchestra or something like that. And so I remember meeting some kind of resistance like that or some people who, who then came and said, oh, but, you know, I also want to do that. Why, why isn't you doing it? Well, <laughs> so I remember having that kind of uh, conversation with friends. And, uh, but we succeeded and we founded this um, youth orchestra. And uh, it started as a very small chamber group uh, with, you know, 20 people or so. And I did that for the last two years that I lived in Argentina. And I remember by the end of it, uh, it was a fully fleshed symphony orchestra with a, a, a choir of its own as well, um, with a symphonic wind ensemble, and we would do tours. And so I learned a lot from this experience about uh, the administration side of things yeah, and fundraising yeah. side of things, which then would prove quite quite helpful later in life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. I read that when you did leave, um, I have two universities here: State University of New York at Buffalo and the Pennsylvania State University. Which one first? Um, because one was in composition and one was in conducting. Uh, so, which, yeah. what what drew you away? Was it was it pen to paper or was it baton midair? Uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> so I started with with Penn State. That was my my okay. first uh, entry into the U.S. and it was kind of by by chance. Like it, most good things happen in life. Mm. Uh, I was actually my thought the year before I I finished my degree in UCA. Uh, I was 
thinking of going to Germany. I had mm. been learning German for a number of years and I took this exam at the Goethe Institute in Buenos Aires and they gave me a scholarship to go for a couple of months to Berlin to mm. keep learning German. That was the, you know, the, the reason per se of the scholarship. But um, of course, being there, I used it for so many wonderful musical things as well and meeting professors at the Universität der Kunste in, in Berlin. Uh, I was planning on doing composition in Berlin. Mm. And so I, I took a lot of my compositions with me of, you know, a, a 20, 20, 21 year old bringing a few little scores. Uh, and I went to see so many concerts with the Berlin Philharmonic. I saw a wonderful workshop with Kent Nagano at the Hans Eisler School of Music. I, I remember um, so many incredible concerts I got to see. And so I went back to Buenos Aires to finish my degree for my last year. And that was all set for me that I would apply for this uh, scholarship to continue my my career, my training in Germany. And then probably just a couple, a few months later, um, I remember there was this master class with a conducting teacher at UCA. And I was chosen uh, by Scravino to, to be one of the conductors, uh, you know, doing yeah. this. And so I met this fantastic, fantastic conducting teacher called Gerardo Edelstein. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember I was doing Mozart Requiem and uh, we had a, just a, it was an immediate uh, rapport that I hadn't felt before with him, uh, with, with anyone. I mean, uh. um, and uh, so we chatted and he happened to be the conducting professor at Penn State. And uh, of course, he, he encouraged me to to apply to do this degree. And, uh, you know, I just there was something so special about him and about how much I learned from him in such a short moment in a masterclass situation that I went ahead and, and that's how it, it you know, my, my plans changed. Well, I think that, I mean, that happens. A friend of mine, um, Nico Kaspustiansky, I've probably pronounced his name wrong, who uh, has did a similar thing. You know, I think he uh, he appeared in a masterclass with a, a teacher in the US and ended up going there for a year or two and doing a master's in conducting. And uh, and it was down to, again, rapport and it was down to uh, a mutual respect and bond. And, and, you know, off he went and did two years there. And and uh, I think that that happens, you know, even for instrumentalists, they go and play with, for somebody and somebody says, well, you know, if you're thinking of studying, come and be in my class. And, and it's a good way also for the teacher of thinking, well, I've got somebody talented here. I can I, you know, I can invest, I can give, I can I can help. Um, and again, so a second teacher, um, different to Scarabino, uh, I'm assuming. Very, very different. So yeah. this is probably what I found so uh, attractive. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, again, very grateful for the for the very rigorous training that Scarabino gave me because I, I found that it was uh, maybe a different kind of teacher would not have picked so much interest in me in conducting. Yeah. But there were so many uh, hoops to jump through and so many uh, difficulties to to get through that I, I found it a great challenge to study with Scarabino. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then my second teacher, Edelstein, uh, was very, very different. He had trained at the Rubin Academy in Jerusalem. And uh, he was also actually from Argentina, mm -hmm. uh, but he left very young. He was, I think, 19 when, when he went to Jerusalem. Um, and then uh, it was n not at all, like you said, just like in the Swarovski sense, not at all focused on the, on the stick. Mm -hmm. uh, it was all about breathing. It was all about phrasing. It was all about 
different kind of imagination that I hadn't been exposed to before. So to me, it was very complementary to my uh, original training. And I, I'm mm. so grateful for that. Well, I mean, while we're on the subject of teachers, uh, looking at your biography, I'm going to list the people that you list on your biography. And, you know, early in your conducting life, you we all go uh, to master classes or to master's programs like you did uh, in the US, or your first teacher, or in my case, you know, I sat meters away from people week in week out conducting in front of me and they're all different uh, and you have to form a way of taking from them what you need and discarding the rest i mean what can you tell me that you took from uh and the others on the list that people you said that you've been taught by or been mentored by michael tilson thomas peter ertversch leonard slatkin andrea pestalozza and martin brabins i mean that's that's five more names there what can you say that you got from those that you didn't hadn't got from Edelstein or, or Scarabino? It's all people that I adore and that I'm so lucky to have had, you know, contact with yeah. and that I've, I've learned so incredibly much from uh, with with MTT. I was his assistant with the San Francisco Symphony for two years, two seasons. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the incredible uh, experience of seeing him rehearse Mahler symphonies or Beethoven symphonies or Copland or Stravinsky with that orchestra, one of the one of the greatest orchestras in the world, uh, being, you know, with him in his dressing room chatting and, you know, fooling around piano for hands, all, all of those incredible moments uh, that I cherish, um, um, the generosity that he had just giving me so much of his time backstage talking, um, being his uh, note delivery boy at occasions just before. I mean, he's a meticulous worker. This was to me, to me so eye-opening, seeing somebody at his level after being for 20 plus years with that orchestra. Uh, you know, they typically do three, four concerts a week of yeah. the same program. And occasionally it would be the third program. And of course, sometimes we would be recording the Schumann symphonies or whatever it might be that week uh, for their own label. And so besides having been uh, his extra pair of ears in the hall for balance, for color, articulation, anything, as you know, uh, I would be, you know, just before the concert, uh, always wearing a nice suit because I knew that MTT might might ask me to go on stage and deliver this note to the principal second violin or whoever it might be that, OK, tell them that, you know, there, this articulation needs to be such and such in this bar. <laughs> wow. So wow. All, all of this taught me yeah. so much about this keeping fresh alive the performance up to the very last minute even though you know we've played the symphony three times this week there's one yeah. more and it is really important that we do it differently this time yeah yeah with martin brabins an incredible incredible conductor wonderful person wonderful teacher i studied with him at the orkney conducting course i was oh, very lucky yes. yeah. to be to be invited to this course i did it at least twice i think mm. uh, so i love that place um, and the fantastic whiskey that you find up there on the beer. <laughs> I always wanted to do that course. Well, around the time that I started conducting, I thought, well, if there was one course I, w I wanted to go and do, um, A, because I, I met Martin when I was um, uh, 20, I think I was, um, and, and also because of the location, I thought, you know, that's a course I always wanted to do. And that was with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, wasn't it? Yeah, one year it was with the BBC Scottish, the other year it was with the Royal National Scottish Orchestra. Yes. And one year, I remember the first time I did it, it was with Sean Edwards, which I know has been on your podcast as well. Mm. Another wonderful, wonderful teacher. And the second time it was with Martin. 
and uh, and then with Martin we developed a relationship. He was also very very generous with me. He invited me to assist him with the BBC Symphony in London, and it was for um, highly uh, complex programs. I remember the first time I assisted him, it was for an all immersion, total immersion, um, Fernihau program. Ah, right. Right, no. Fernihau program. <laughs> no, no wonder, you, yeah, complicated. <laughs> That's I remember so... <laughs> the score was so incredibly large yeah. that the publisher sent me a, the smaller one that they sent me was two or three feet tall. And <laughs> they said, and it was so tiny that I could barely see anything. So they said, we're going to have in your hotel the full size score ready. And I got there, it was at least five feet tall, the score. I remember they had to build a, a special, uh, you know, wooden type of attachment to the to the conductor's uh, stand for Martin and me to use. Uh, uh, and in Maidervale uh, in London, I can tell you, dear listeners, the music stand's already pretty large as it is. I mean, to have to make the, that music stand bigger is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. It was. <laughs> That experience with Martin and the BBC Symphony Orchestra, uh, you were assisting him. But in other places like um, San Francisco with MTT, but also you did some cover conducting with the National Symphony Orchestra of Washington, DC. Can you tell us, there is a subtle difference between being a cover conductor and being an assistant conductor. What does cover conducting really mean? Yeah, so we so the difference, for example, with Martin, it was very hands-on, and I was actively uh, working in rehearsals. Uh, in fact, part of the the reason why he brought me there, all the way from California to to London, was he was doing sectionals uh, mm. with even with such a great orchestra as the BBC Symphony, who can sight read pretty much anything. Yeah, like the music be. the music was so thick and so textural that he wanted to clean it up and make sure that. It would come super super clean mm. and so he well he was working with various groups in the strings i was conducting rehearsals and it was i remember i was there only for two or three two days i think was full rehearsals like four or five sectional rehearsals a day mm. and i remember clearly because i was in the run of bluebeard's castle here in california <laughs> and i had to kind of leave for two or three days to to do fernie howe in a very intense way and it was just one piece that i was working on mm. uh la terre is an homme extremely massively um, you know individualistic for every musician in the orchestra every string player had their own part of mm. course all, all the winds and the cymbalome and all the great percussion um, and so I was very actively working as the second conductor, yeah. uh, as the assistant. Whereas in experiences like with the National Symphony, those weeks I was there, I was just ready to jump in. That's essentially what you do as the cover conductor. You need to know the repertoire inside out, go to the rehearsals, make sure you know how things were done. And sometimes you don't get to interact so much with the conductor you're covering for. Mm. Um, so you're not expected to give balance um, uh, suggestions. You're not expected to necessarily even spend much time with the person who's conducting. You're literally there. You must know the score backwards and you're finding out how the main conductor, in inverted commas, is going to conduct the concert. And should he or she fall over and break their arm, you can jump in and cover them at any minute's notice. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. So 
I mean, you know, in in some jobs in the UK now, I suppose it's an amalgamation of those two where, you know, you, you're expected or you could be asked to give balances if you're an assistant conductor. You will, of course, meet all of the conductors and probably end up having a meal or two with them and, and get to know them and, and maybe get lessons off them. But again, if you're around, you're expected to jump in. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a it's sort of an amalgamation of that. I mean, other people have mentioned being cover conductors, and I know personal friends of mine who've done it. Um, that must be fascinating to watch the process, but then slightly frustrating when you don't get to jump in. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of how it worked with, with MTT, because my relationship initially with, with him and the San Francisco Symphony was to go and serve as his cover conductor. So to begin with, yes, I was expected just to be there knowing all the scores and ready to jump in if, if oh. needed. But as our relationship also uh, became more more interesting with me spending more time with him uh, backstage, uh, he started asking more of me. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, by the time I, you know, I didn't re even realize my relationship had, had changed into more of an assistant role where uh, if we were doing recordings, you know, he, he was asking for a lot of my input, not just in the hall, but afterwards and taking notes and going into the recording booth and all sorts of things that uh, normally a cover conductor wouldn't do. Yeah. Uh, it means that he's he's learned to trust you in your ears over that time, and you went on and, and did um, you conducted subscription concerts and you guest conducted there, and that's you know it's a, a wonderful way uh, in, isn't it? When you, you sort of gain the trust and a relationship with a music director. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things that you know either happen or or don't. You can't force them, and uh, I was very very grateful for his support and his generosity. Talking of guest conducting, it's something that I discuss often with people. And you not only have guest conducted pretty much all around the world uh, in symphonic terms, but you've also done opera, English National Opera, back home in Argentina at the Teatro Colón. Um, I'm assuming you like a good mixture of that because obviously uh, an opera production takes six or eight weeks and you're expected to be around and then conduct the first performances or maybe the whole run. Um, I don't know, none of us are guesting at the moment. But, you know, that that guest conducting, standing up in front of an orchestra for the first time, putting the beat down and not knowing what's coming back. Um, how is it for you? Um, and then maybe you can tell us a bit more about, you know, your how much you enjoy working in the opera world. Yeah, so uh, I should say in the US, it seems like it seems uh, quite a separated business. You're either an opera conductor or you're a symphony conductor. I don't know why it is so so separated really whereas uh, and i don't think it uh, should be it, it shouldn't be because yeah. uh you know one thing really fits the other for sure yeah uh, and i think it's a lot more uh unified in in europe at least yeah um but yeah i love i love both equally and and, and having a chance of doing both is is so important to me um and that uh, moment, that initial moment you mentioned as a guest conductor showing up for the first time with an orchestra you don't know, you've never been in front of, I think it um, can be nerve-wracking, but it's also really important, I think, uh, as a conductor, as you gain more and more experience to, to learn how to, to trust right away. And the more you trust, the more you will be able to give, the more you will receive. Uh, whereas if you if you get behind that uh, uh, wall of nerves, uh, it's not good for anybody. <laughs> no, no, it's never good for anybody. <laughs> uh, and whilst guest conducting, since 2012, you've been the music director of the Camellia Symphony Orchestra, which is in Sacramento. Um, how many weeks a year is that for you? And how much 
uh, of the public face um, element of being a music director in the US do you are you required to do the, the you know going to fundraising parties and receptions and and speaking to philanthropists and things like that so that is really essential here which yeah, is one of, of the things yeah. uh, that many uh, conductors who are not from here like Daniel Barenboim they you know they hate that aspect of how important yeah. there is in the US because we we receive uh, you know almost literally no no government support no. so uh, luckily, there, there are many people in this country who who realize the the responsibility they have, especially if if, if they have some extra cash around. Mm -hmm. That unless they donate some of that money to arts organizations, they're not going to have these <laughs> arts organizations anymore. No. Um, mm -hmm. So I've learned, you know, I've been for nearly half of my life in this country, and I've uh, I've learned so much from from these experiences, and I actually enjoy it. Um, you know, in the end, I see my role as uh, somebody through which uh, you can you can help connect with people in the community who who are actually very uh, happy to support the organization at, at the beginning I remember it, it could be uncomfortable to think oh why how am I gonna ask for money you know how, how is, does this work but in fact the more you connect with these people and, and you actually build relationships and friendships you, you realize they are thrilled to be able to help and support the the organization, mm. and and it is uh, it feels quite a virtuous uh, cycle that uh, this this is so meaningful to them that they are they are glad to be a part of it. Well, it's 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 sort of forming or helping expand the family, isn't it? The family of people who are interested, involved, invested, and not just financially invested, emotionally invested, time invested in an orchestra such as the you know, Camellia Symphony Orchestra, that you build, you're building the family of people who are, who are, you know, they're linked to you and, and they'll, they'll be around to support you. And I think that, yeah, I mean, even orchestras that, that are centrally funded by governments, you know, I, I think it's something that they should do. It, it, even if it means that they, you know, that they promise other things in other other ways, but to reach out into the community is such an important thing. Absolutely, and and the more you learn about them, the more you realize also that certain people might be very uh, likely to to want to support this or that project, but not that other one. Mm. And so it 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 becomes very natural in the end that you know that you want to support these uh, young opera singers. And and you know who you have to talk to. And yes. You wanna yeah. you wanna support a Russian program, and you know which kind of person you, you wanna reach out to as well. Mm, mm. And so um, I'm not sure you told me, but if you did remind me, um, how many weeks a year is that? How big is the Camellia Symphony Orchestra? Because I don't know about it. How many members do you have? Uh, how many weeks of concerts do you give? Do you have guest conductors? So we typically have uh, six subscription concerts a year with Camellia Symphony. We also have a few smaller runouts. Uh, we like to perform uh, free family concerts, so featuring sometimes young artists. Mm. Uh, it's actually, it, it, the orchestra has an important role uh, in Sacramento where we expose many kids, especially of underserved areas, to music for the first time. So in addition to having the regular series, we have this other uh, series called Free Family Concerts where anybody can come. And we have a lot of homeless people coming to those concerts as well. Mm. We have a lot of kids from, you know, there is a school in Howe Avenue, for example, which is uh, many of the students that come from refugee families from many different countries. Some of them don't even speak English yet. And in fact, there is a fantastic music teacher in this school 
um, Gail Winnie, who is teaching uh, the kids English through music. I mean, they start drumming. Uh, wow. These kids start connecting with one another that way. There was a phenomenal article in the paper about, about her program. And so I saw this article and I reached out to her and I said, I want to offer you tickets to our performances so that your mm. students and their families can come. And it was very, very moving. Uh, we invited them not just to the free concerts, but to the actual subscription ones. Uh, mm. You know, to every concert, we would give a certain number of tickets and many of the, the kids and their families would come and we would receive then you know, dozens of, of letters and cards and written, you know, in many different uh, languages from yeah, yeah. Uh, Farsi to Arabic and you, you name it. I mean, these yeah. kids, a lot of them came from some Syria, uh, from Iraq. Uh, it's just very, very special to be able to do these things. Wow, that's amazing. What a wonderful initiative. Um, super, absolutely wonderful. So if you're not conducting Camellia Symphony Orchestra or doing your role as music director in Sacramento and, and wider and beyond, and you're not guest conducting and you're not doing an opera run somewhere, you're still composing. I read you're a prize-winning composer and you're still having pieces performed, I believe. How do you find time? Um, I spoke to Bram Tovey about this and, and he sort of sets himself so much time a day if he's got time. Uh, he's an early morning person. When do you write? How do you try and write so much a day or do you do it all in a in a big lump of a period and don't conduct at that point? That's exactly how it works for me. Right. Um, just trying to lump it all in one period where, uh, I mean, when I'm in a conducting run and find it very difficult because, you know, as you know, if when you're at least I can be very obsessive learning, learning music and learning a score and you're hearing that score in your head a lot of the time. And if you're doing opera, yeah. oh, my goodness, yeah, all of the, the time, whole, yeah. the whole. Yeah. And so I find it very difficult with all of that, um, those sounds going in my head to actually be able to produce my own sounds. So the last piece I wrote, it, it was a violin concerto and I would wake up, yeah, four in the morning and walk for a good four hours, mm. uh, completely uninterrupted. I would force myself, force myself, no newspapers, no social media, no emails, nothing of the sort, uh, and just get to work. And uh, and then that would be the you know very very productive moment for for several weeks, three two three weeks at least, um, to have most of the piece done. Um, and then otherwise, sometimes it's finding those moments like like Mahler would do the summer or whatever you can find and, and just take out of your regular everyday life. But it works yeah. for me better to do it that way. I remember I used to be a more of a nighttime composer, especially when I was much younger in my 20s. You know, I could begin at midnight. And when I was living in Buenos Aires, as you know, that, that city uh, kind yeah, of no, never sleeps. Yeah, nothing nothing goes to sleep there. Yeah, exactly. And so I would stay awake till three till four. And those were my composing hours. Yeah, but wow. it's kind of changed. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that's because we get older. Um, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, the, the temptations of being up at three or four in the morning are not quite as big as they were. Um, what's interesting about uh, working late at night is that when I first started conducting, uh, I would come home from 
playing the violin. And I would often stay up until two, marking up my scores. Now, you've done a lot, as you said, Fernie Ho uh, and, and lots of other contemporary music, I know, because I've read about it. So how do you mark up and learn a score? Um, I'm assuming, and maybe naively, that because through doing a lot of contemporary music, you do write things in your scores. Um, do you use colours? And how do you go about learning a brand new score if you're doing it contemporary or even going back to an old favourite? What's your method? Oh, <laughs> this is a, such an important question. It varies it so much by, by conductors, really. But I well, remember it's, one it's, it's why conducting geeks and conducting students are so happy that I ask you all this, because they get tips, but they also realise that maybe, you know, there isn't a specific way and you've just got to find your own way. Yeah, I, I remember I was never into colours. Uh, my <laughs> scores are very much, I like using pencil because yeah. I love being able to erase. Uh, MTT has uh, those pencils that are half blue, half red. He uses that a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I was never into pencils. And I remember in one of the times I was at the Orkney conducting course and Martin was teasing and teasing and teasing another American conductor that was there. I shall, the name shall remain secret. <laughs> uh, and he was just laughing and laughing that this guy had a system with like five, eight, ten colors. And, you know, oh, if it's wow. dynamics, it's one color. If it's articulation, it's another one. If it's a crescendo, it's one color. If it's decrescendo, it's another one. And so Martin would not stop laughing about this. Um, so for me, what works is just simplicity. I like not to write too much, just to stick to the... The, the bare bones of things, um, especially when a score is very complex uh, with, you know, metrical modulations or things like this, I try to keep it as simple as possible and, mm. and develop a system that is going to work for me and that is going to help me know exactly which kind of upbeat do I need to give for the new tempo or anything like that. Mm. And do you sit at your desk and do it in your head or do you use a piano? Um, are you somebody who would start at the beginning and work your way through, or are you somebody who would, you know, go from big to small? I try to do all of that, all of the <laughs> above. Uh, so yes, the piano, of course, I use. Uh, I also do a lot of work at the desk. Yeah. Um, I try to probably go f to the overall first, and then go into smaller, really, uh, the the sections that I think need the most attention. Um, and then go back to the overall again to see if you see it differently. Yeah. That's kind of how I tried to do it. It's interesting you're talking about going from overall to small and then back to overall. I think, you know, that's something I do a lot in, in that, if possible, if I'm given the date well enough in advance, that I will mark up and learn my score six to nine months ahead. And then in the in the two or three weeks before the date is coming up or the week's rehearsal is coming up, I'll then go back to the start and sort of start on the outside and work back in again, even though I've marked it up in my red, blue and black. Um, you know, I will then do it again with fresh eyes and hopefully that it seeped in six months before and nine months before. Um, and then, you know, I'll find something new. Um, it works for me. Um, doesn't, I'm not sure it works for everybody else. Yeah, and time, like you said, six, nine months, the time can really change your perception of things, uh, which goes to your your other question about, you know, a score that you've used before, uh, mm. that, you've, that you've conducted before. And when I, I have sometimes of, of some scores, I have multiple copies of because precisely I like the idea of um, revisiting something, if possible, with fresh eyes. And when you're kind of reacting to 
uh, your own previous judgment or assessment, I like to, you know, at least you might be using that larger score, but at least go to the score, have a miniature one and look at it again and see if, if there is something that catches your attention that you hadn't thought about before. And something else I like doing is singing a lot. Mm. Um, so I will, especially with a passage that you, you need to try and figure out phrasing or where the, where, where the peak really is or anything like that. I, I do like the, that little challenge of saying, okay, these eight bars, I need to see how I would, how I would play this, how I would sing this, and here's the horn or whatever it might be. Mm. Mm. I think that's a very good thing to do. Uh, I wouldn't wish my singing on anybody, but I think, uh, even if I hum it or, or you know, I'll make sure that there's nobody in the house if I'm going to do anything like singing. But, <laughs> but I do think it's a very good thing to do to learn the phrasing. And even sometimes I've done it with a solo, um, you know, a woodwind solo, and I've sort of sung it through and through. Well, where, am I, where do I have to breathe? And where, where is breathing bad? You know, that sort of thing. Um, that I think it helps. And sometimes it's so much easier, especially if you have to explain, um, you know, during a rehearsal, the phrasing or something. And it might save a lot of time if you sing it, you know, sing those four bars rather than explain that. And, and, you know, and then you go and a little crescendo here or. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Christian, it's 10 questions time. And as I'm sure you know, they start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? May I have more than one? Of course each. you may. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> because I was thinking, I love nature, mm. but I also love so many other things. So if I was to go in nature, I think the sound of the ocean and the waves, uh, it just makes me go ready for surfing. Uh, and so, probably makes you go back home, I suppose, for, to miles Absolutely. Yeah. I was I was born in a house not so far away from the ocean, so the sound of the ocean is very uh, it's emotional for me as well. Um, but I would say uh, if I had to choose a man-made kind of sound, it's the sound of uh, a wine bottle being uncorked. Ah, oh, oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Malbec, or do you not care? Oh, my favorite, of course. Mm, yeah, it's my favorite too. Um, I, I mean, I, I liked it before I went to Argentina, but now I've been many times. I know which ones I like and which ones I like even more. <laughs> and especially when you're down there, you can find so many. I mean, you can find a lot of Argentina wine abroad, really. Yeah. But but when you go to Argentina, you can find so many ones. Mm. Well, they're, they're like any other wine producing country that, you know, I'm sure they sell some very good ones abroad, but they keep the very, very, very best ones back for themselves. For um, sure. Yeah. And a sound that you hate or more than one sound that you hate. The voice of Donald Trump. <laughs> well, um, for those people who uh, are listening to this podcast, we're doing this exactly seven days before Mr. Trump um, officially, supposedly, leaves the White House. But of course, it may happen before then. We'll never know. But um, I think you're the second person to not mention Trump directly, but Holly Matheson, all the way back in episode two her sound that she hated with the sound of American politics. So <laughs> she wasn't wow. quite as direct, but you know, I think with seven days to go, you're, he's not going to come around and knock on the door. And <laughs> it would be so lovely not to have to hear his voice anymore, but you know, one can only hope. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, it's kind of not long enough to go to Hawaii. <laughs> so uh, 
perhaps trying, I love cooking, so perhaps trying one of those very long recipes that are tempting but complicated, uh, scary, maybe doing some amazing croissant or something like that. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Carlos Kleiber, Claudia Bado, Gunter Wand, Pierre Goulet, all for different reasons, obviously. Yes. Gunter Wand has not come up very often, if at all, before. Um, wow. And a wonderful conductor, and well, especially Bruckner. I mean, his Bruckner's almost unsurpassed. Bruckner, his Brahms as well. I'm, yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm surprised. Yeah, and actually, I'm not sure whether Boulez has come up particularly often. Um, you know, I, I played for the man, and, and it was a fascinating and very enjoyable, exciting week. But he hasn't come up on this question too often. Well, I think it's not your typical conductor's conductor maybe no but, uh, i think it, he he could be so incredibly amazing for so so much repertoire yeah uh we played a piece of of his for him and i remember him his ear being so frighteningly good that you know i think he turned to one of the viola desks uh, that were all the each desk had its own part and he turned around and said, "No, those those notes are wrong there." And you know, <laughs> <laughs> I know you wrote it, but you know you're not supposed to be able to hear each individual death. That's ridiculous. That reminds me of Peter Edvosh. He was he's exactly that same way. That kind of you know X-ray ear that he will hear anything. That's frightening, isn't it? Uh, well, are there any conduct favorite current conductors who might have X-ray ears? What would your choices be? Yeah, so again, it really de depends on the repertoire, but yeah. I would mention for, for different reasons, Pavo Yarvi, Christian mm. Tillemann, MTT, and I love also the imagination, the freedom of René Jacobs. Well, again, two choices on there that have not come up, and maybe MTT has, but Tillemann uh, and René Jacobs, two names that definitely haven't come up before. Uh, brilliant answers. Again, Tillemann and Bruckner, uh, I could watch those on the Philharmonic Concert Hall over and over oh, again. Yes. Uh, uh, I'm not sure so much about his Beethoven, but his, his Bruckner, yes, definitely. And his René Jacobs, yeah, yeah, and his Wagner, of course, yeah, absolutely, yeah. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I'm tempted to say several works by Ligeti, uh, mm. and I, it's a composer that has been very close to me, and I've conducted many of his works, perhaps his violin concerto. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm also tempted to say that one can find difficulty in simplicity as well. Uh, <laughs> yes. yeah. Sometimes, you know, the incomprehensible simplicity in a Mozart score can be much more difficult and daunting than a very complex score by Stockhausen or Elliot Carter. Yeah, that's true. Uh, absolutely true. I mean, some of the hardest things you have ever have to conduct are, you know, Strauss waltzes and polkas, especially the waltzes. Um, yeah. To make them sound <laughs> fluid and natural is just one of the hardest things in the world. Um, just to find a way for it not to get stale and boring and yeah. yeah. Yeah, and make it sound like it should, like the Vienna Phil on January the 1st. You know, it's exactly some of, the, some of the hardest things you ever have to do. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? A good book. Um, it's important for me. Uh, I mean, today is the, the age of Netflix and we all watch all sorts of things. You have access to anything all the time. But uh, I think something that can keep you focused and, you know, distract. I think it's important to to keep your mind off of the scores sometimes. And a good book can really help you do that uh, so that, you know, you don't obsess over a score, but come back to it with a fresh mind. But uh, I should also mention I'm quite fond of my electric toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? 
I think it would be fun to see some very unusual or impossible pairings. And I'm talking about, you know, we're always used to uh, safety and guarantees in the business, the right kind of pairings on the same level, managements and agents tend not to take risks. Mm. Uh, but how about if we shuffle it all around, uh, orchestras and soloists and conductors completely interchanged, like in a fantasy world. Mm. Uh, imagine, I don't know, Valery Gergiev, uh, how would he deal with being paired with a school orchestra, accompanying a concerto that is not necessarily his usual repertoire. Mm. Or, mm. or the Berlin Philharmonic used to working with the greatest conductors in the world. And imagine you expose them uh, uh, to a 15-year-old aspiring conductor at the helm uh, doing a little arrangement instead of a usual masterpiece. <laughs> or Cavaco is playing as a soloist with a minor regional orchestra or Karajan rehearsing mm. an orchestra of 100 double basses or guitars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but the, the point about that is that some of that is so fantastic that it is funny, but some of that actually really does make the mind think. Uh, I like that answer very much. Um, I mean, I've been in a couple of those situations where, you know, uh, an amateur orchestra I've been conducting since the very beginning of my conducting here in Birmingham. And through various sets of circumstances, we ended up doing a concert in a very small uh, concert hall north of Birmingham in a place called Sutton Coalfield. So it was my amateur orchestra in a very small concert hall doing Brahms's first piano concerto with Stephen Huff. And wow. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, what was amazing was that, you know, the orchestra were obviously in awe of him, but he was just so wonderfully uh, easy to work with. He was wonderful with them, very complimentary. Of course, the whole place was packed out. But I, yeah, I'd love to see a lot more of those sorts of things happen. Um, I think it that would, would be, be wonderful. It would be fantastic, especially, I mean, I probably took it to the extreme comical. But, but, uh, but you know, sense, you made your point. Yeah, you're right. In, in, a, in a sense, you know what I mean, that it would be yeah. refreshing to see a bit more more freedom within the business side of sometimes that word business is a scary one and yeah. it gets stale. And this idea of safety and not taking risks it can be very detrimental to art making. And yeah. it would be nice to see that change, especially once this pandemic is over. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I think being a sommelier, I mean, uh, wine and food and the relationship between the two are also an art form. And uh, I, I don't know, it would be quite a treat. It would be quite fun doing that. I probably would be terrible, but uh, I imagine myself enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you a little story about I, my big uh, passion away from music is cricket. And I got to meet somebody who I think had has possibly one of the greatest jobs in the world. He spends most of his life either writing match reports for newspapers uh, on cricket matches so he sits and watches cricket all day and then his other job is a, is a journalist writing for he's a journalist writing for wine magazines so you know his two basically his job is watching cricket and drinking wine well wow. i mean you know yeah exactly i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah how do some people get this you know uh, lovely man a lucky name, person yeah his name's jeff dean um really lovely man and yeah, what a lucky job. Um, but yeah, that would be a wonderful thing to do, wouldn't it? Sommelier. Um, so fun. But also, I mean, there's an element you, you would have to train quite hard for that. It's quite rigorous training, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I, you know, one can say uh, just like somebody would, would claim, oh, a plane pilot or an orchestra conductor and without, without the rigorous training, uh, forget about it. And this is yeah. exactly the same. I think if you want, you want to be a good one, you need to be you need to work super hard to achieve that level. Well, let's find out which <laughs> which wine you're going to choose for question 10. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? 
Well, without a doubt, it would be uh, a wonderful Argentinian steak um, and accompanied by a nice bottle of Malbec. I mean, if you have me name one. Uh, well, why not? I, yeah, it, it would be by Weinert, the, the winery. Mm -hmm. um, and there is one wine of theirs that I haven't tried yet, but every single wine of theirs that I've tried is remarkable. And this would be for a very special occasion. Obviously, there is a 1977 Malbec, mm -hmm. uh, Estrella, so the star. And I think it's actually the wine that uh, made Argentinian wine famous internationally mm. uh, because it was, I think, Robert Parker Jr. who traveled to, to Mendoza, in, you know, shortly after 77 and visited this uh, vineyard, the Weinert, and, and he wrote an article that launched Argentinian wines to the world and claiming that this is really like 19th century winemaking. We don't see this kind of places anymore, certainly not in Napa and in most mm. places in Europe. I mean, he's, he wrote something like, they don't use stainless steel, this is all wood. How do these people do it? <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a, that's a winery I really like. Well, you've just, I think we've basically going out on the same meal. Um, in episode one, in the taster episode, I gave the answer that it would be an Argentinian meal with Malbec, um, possibly starting with some empanadas and a bottle of Quilmes, which I know Argentinians don't necessarily think is a great beer. I do. But, you know, maybe uh, if our uh, final meal could be together, we could enjoy the same wine and the same meal. And I've really enjoyed chatting to you, Christian. It's been wonderful. And I hope very much to um, to meet up with you, preferably in Buenos Aires, and we can sit down and we can do that exact meal in the future. I would love that, Mike, and thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun and very, very enjoyable. Thank you. A Mike on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a British conductor who won the 2017 Besançon Young Conductors Competition and has since gone on to become principal conductor of Glyndebourne Touring Opera and music director of Opera de Rouen. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>